Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to become uh, your partners in the gospel. Show us today what that actually means, what it means to become gospel partners with you, gospel partners with each other in this local church family. Lord, help us, uh, motivate us to become more thankful toward you in prayer for all that you've given us in Christ, but also all the people, Christian influences that you've brought into our lives, churches in our past that we've been a part of, all of this that has helped us get to the place where we're at uh, in our spiritual growth today. Help us to be thankful and to remember them in our prayers. Holy Spirit, uh, we ask that you would give us and empower us with a discernment and knowledge-filled kind of love for one another so that when people see our church family love one another, they will see the love of Christ and that Christ is present with us. I ask for your help in this moment, Holy Spirit, that everything I would say would be from you, for you, and your credit and glory alone. I ask for your anointing and power in this moment. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Scott to read today's scripture. Thank you, Kurt. Today's passage is Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from, our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is, ex what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Scott, uh, we're beginning a brand new sermon series today. Uh, it is on the book of Philippians, and the title of it is, To Live is Christ. Uh, to Live is Christ. That phrase may sound a little ambiguous, a little, I don't know, just kind of different than what we would often say, but the thing is, it is a phrase that Paul uses and is really a mega theme for the entire book of Philippians. You may have heard someone say, I want to know what it is to, I want to really live. I want to really live. And it, there's kind of that element to it that Paul is insinuating uh, about what the Christian life is. Christian living is actually to really live, to, to experience life in all its vibrancy. And so today, from, from today to the end of June, we are working our way through this book, verse by verse by verse, uh, so that we don't miss anything that God wants to communicate to us, that we don't miss anything that he wants to, us to be changed by. And to set things up for the series, I want to share with you some quick background to the book 
of Philippians, otherwise known as the epistle. It's, it's actually a letter, kind of like an email or a long text that you might share with someone that you care about. And here's some quick background to this book of the Bible in the New Testament. Um, the backstory is this. The Apostle Paul, he was a missionary, and he went on three big, long missionary trips, and on this second missionary journey in and around the early 50s A.D., uh, he, he is traveling along with his co-worker Silas, and they actually come to the ancient city of Philippi, and Philippi is named after uh, a, a former king of Macedonia who was named Philip, go figure. And interestingly, I would encourage you, if you have a chance soon or today, to read Acts chapter 16 because it gives you the, the backstory as to where the book of Philippians uh, came from. And in Acts chapter 16, it is described uh, that Paul is receiving this vision from God at night. And he gets this message, this vision from God. It's famously known as the Macedonian call. And it's a vision of this guy, this man. And he's calling out to Paul saying, come over to Macedonia. We need help. Help us. Well, what happens next? Paul obeys God's message given to him. And so Paul and his team, they travel uh, to the most important city in Macedonia at that time. And it's named, any guesses? It, it's named Philippi, okay? This is a, a Roman colony uh, that was part of the Roman Empire at the time. And Philippi itself was the most important city in the entire region, uh, province of Macedonia. They had a lot of mining going on, kind of like what we have here in BC. They had a lot of agriculture and, and very good soil, kind of like what we have here in the Fraser Valley. And likely this is a very strategic move for Paul to target Philippi because he gets this Macedonian call and he's like, how can I best influence the entire country, the entire region, I will target the most influential city, and then the spillover effect from there will spill over into the towns and cities in and around Philippi, and that's exactly what happens. So Paul and his team, they come into Philippi, and they come there to preach the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and also live out the gospel and display the love of Christ there. And so what do they first do when they bust into Philippi? Well, they are hunting. You know what they're hunting for? They're hunting for Jewish people. In a positive way, okay? They're looking for any Jewish people because this is what they would do. They would often start with the Hebrew folks because at least they had some understanding and anticipation and knowledge of the coming Messiah that was prophesied about in the Old Testament of the Bible. It was like they had a starting place for the gospel. And amazingly, it seems that Paul and his team, they're walking around and they're walking alongside the river uh, in Philippi and they find there a prayer meeting uh, of women. It's a bunch of women praying together alongside the, the river. And it's a Saturday. It's the Sabbath day for the Jews. And they come across a, a woman by the name of Lydia. And Lydia uh, is a seller of purple cloth, meaning she's likely got some money. She's likely a wealthy person. And she is a worshiper of God. Paul shares the gospel and... Amazingly, in that moment of, of sharing about Jesus with Lydia and with the other women, well, in that moment of sharing the gospel, God the Holy Spirit opens her heart to hear this message and then receive and believe in the gospel about Jesus. Lydia and her whole family are actually baptized that day, I'm thinking, in that same river, because it's right there, probably. 
And that day is the day that the Philippian church began. Uh, they started meeting in Lydia's home, and it's incredible to see the power of the gospel. All Paul does, shares the gospel winsomely, compassionately, lovingly. And she hears it. Her heart's opened by God, the Holy Spirit, and she's in. It's amazing, the power of the gospel. Okay? Fast forward from this time in the 50s A.D. to several years later now to the time of the writing of Philippians itself that we have in the Bible. Paul is, in this moment of writing Philippians, this letter to this church, he is probably under house arrest under the Romans, likely in Rome itself. And the reason that he's under house arrest is not because he's stolen something, but only because he's shared the gospel about Jesus. That got him arrested, all right? And that's, I mean, it was a serious thing to be a Christian back then. It, made, it gave you pause. Do I really believe in this person named Jesus? Because if I do, it might land me in jail like Paul. He is in jail, and he's writing them this letter in a prison situation, and he's writing them because he deeply cares about this church. I mean, they, he started the church, and he remembers them, and he thinks fondly of them. Further, they have just given him some financial support, so he wants to write them a letter of, of gratitude, like a thank you letter to them for partnering with him in the gospel and supporting his ministry. All right, this letter that he writes, obviously filled with affection, with love, and, and, and filled with joy. This is a joy-filled letter. It's like he's brimming with joy. Can you imagine writing a letter in prison? And this letter is brimming with joy? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. But this is the mathematics of God, if you will. When Christ gets a hold of you, you are joyful in all circumstances, okay? And that's what Paul is experiencing. It's pretty amazing. I have a lot to learn from the example of Paul. One of the most joy-filled books in the entire Bible. All right. There's some background for you to the book of Philippians. I want to get into today's scripture that Paul, or that, sorry, that you're not Paul, this is Scott, that Scott read for us. And to quickly set up sort of the entire idea of our passage, uh, the message title is, is simply one word, and the word is partners. Uh, partners. And the idea of partners and partnership and working together with others is really what this passage is all about. And if you think about it, do you get anything done in life without working together with others? Do I get anything done in life without partnering together with someone else or with multiple people? The answer generally is no. Just like the old Sesame Street uh, saying from that song, I think it was a song. Remember Sesame Street? I think it's, is Sesame Street still around? I have no idea. But there was a song probably performed by some cheesy uh, cartoon at the time, and it, the song went, Cooperation makes it happen. Cooperation makes things happen, okay? So thank you for that. I needed that. And I know for myself, thinking of my own life, like without my wife in my life and her partnership and our partnership together, I would be a complete mess. I mean, raising kids would be so much harder, and she just helps me make wise decisions and just keeps, keeps me together, okay? Uh, so I'm thankful for her partnership with me. What about you? Some of you enjoy business partnerships. You work together with others to make a profit, and that's good. Without that partnership, you probably wouldn't make as much money. Or All of you that are working and are employed in some capacity, you constantly have to partner together with other fellow employees, fellow co co-workers. Uh, and if you didn't work together with others, you wouldn't accomplish many good things, right? You wouldn't make money. 
you wouldn't make the good things happen in the workplace. Bottom line is, we need each other. We need each other in our homes. We need each other in our workplaces. We need each other on our streets, neighborhood watches, right? And we also need each other, in addition to those places, in our church family. We have to have partnerships in the church family. We need to have partners in our church. And very helpfully, the Apostle Paul, in our passage, he lays out some key ways that you and I are to partner together in the life of the church as we collectively work to it together and pursue and run after the mission of Jesus. So here we go. You ready? There is a sermon insert if you do want to follow along. But uh, let's read chapter 1 initially, verse 1. I'm going to read this part again because this is really important stuff. And verse 1 uh, initially at the outset of his letter goes as follows. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. That's code speak for the leadership team, the overseers and the deacons. And what we see in verse 1 here, this is a classic opening greeting that Paul uses to introduce who exactly this letter is from, Paul and Timothy. And I, what I like about this greeting is that Paul uh, describes how he and his co-worker Timothy here, they're not church bigwigs, okay? They're not saying, we are the head honchos here. We are so important. And it's not this attitude where they're brimming with self-promotion and, and brimming with ego and, and pomp and circumstance. And you guys better listen to us because we're in charge and we're high and mighty and we're apostles. We don't get that sense at all because Paul describes he and Timothy as what? As servants. That's code speak for a, being a slave. Hi, we're slaves. Slaves of Christ. All right? And so they're relating themselves to one of the lowest forms of employment in that society at the time. There's no hint of ego, no hint of conceit, no hint of self-promotion here. No, they are mere servants, slaves of Christ, as we must be, as, this is what we are of Christ as well. It's not about us. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to point out from verse 1 is how Paul describes the Christians in the Philippian church there as saints, okay? He says saints, not sinners. He does not redress them as you pieces of work, which they were, and which I am, we are. He doesn't say you a bunch of moral screw-ups. No, he says you're saints. That's who they are. Now, what is a saint? A saint is someone who is pure. A saint is holy. A saint is set apart for God, and a saint is consecrated for service to God and worshiping God. And this is what's so amazing about grace, and I love this about the gospel. The grace that God gives to us when we trust in Jesus, we believe in his finished work on the cross, the minute, the, actually the, the millisecond that you become a Christian on the day of your conversion, that millisecond is when your spiritual status completely changes. Your core identity as to who you are identified as immediately changes in that moment where you become a Christian, you are converted, and your new identity is that you are now a saint. Meaning, you're no longer defined by being a sinner anymore. Yes, you still sin, but that's not who you are. Obviously, you sin, you screw up, 
but sin no longer or has to dominate your life any longer. It doesn't have to be characterized by addiction any longer. Furthermore, you are no longer, the, minute of your, the millisecond of your conversion, you're, you're no longer on the outs with God. You're no longer an enemy of God. No, no, no. You are now his beloved child, beloved son, beloved daughter. You're now defined as a saint. And a saint has been made holy and pure by Jesus, all his work, not our doing. We just trust in what he's done for us to make us pure and clean and righteous in the sight of God. We're now clothed with Christ. God the Father sees us. He sees you if you're a Christian. And he sees perfect righteousness and, and holiness. That's amazing. And he's washed away our sins. We are now a saint. We're now his child. This is our new identity. How good is this? That's all I had to say about that. Let's move on to verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. This is a common saying that Paul often uses and includes in the greetings of his various letters. Paul wrote most of the content of the New Testament. So this is, he's a major figure here. And what I love about part of this greeting here about grace and peace, Paul is summarizing the benefits of the gospel, all the good things that come to you when you trust in Christ. Grace, you know what grace is? Grace is God's undeserved favor for you. His unmerited, basically favor that you didn't earn. Jesus earned for you. It's a free gift. That's grace. And it comes to you simply because you trust in Christ's cross. Furthermore, let's talk about peace. Peace with God. No more being on the outs with God. No more being an enemy of God like I mentioned before. Again, because of Christ's cross, he makes peace between you, us, and God. He's our mediator. He's our go-between. He brings us peace. I'm saying grace and peace are some of the most precious gifts that you can ever receive, that I can ever receive when we trust in the gospel. That's all preamble. Now we're getting to the outline. First point in your notes on that sermon outline about uh, God and this idea of partnering with God uh, is this. Number one is simply we are partners in thankful prayer. We are partners in thankful prayer. Again, that sounds a little weird, but let me explain this. We see this in verses 3 and 4. It says, where Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Here's what you need to know about Paul. Paul was, was a man of prayer, and he had a lot going on. He may have been the busiest person in the world at that time. I kind of think he was, probably. I mean, God used him in amazing ways. Jesus used him to start churches all over Europe and all, all over Asia at that time. I mean, I can only imagine you might be a real social media guru of sorts. And maybe you've got, maybe you've got a, a couple, a thousand or two Facebook friends or Twitter followers, whatever it is, Instagram friends, whatever it is. And you, you're like, man, my, look at my network. My network is amazing. Well, imagine if Paul had Facebook and access to social media, he would have multiple thousands, maybe tens of thousands of followers. I don't know. But, I mean, he was well-connected. His circle of relationships went all over the known world at that time. And yet, despite all these connections and all these so-called Facebook friends, Paul makes it a priority here to remember this little Philippian church that he started years ago. 
and to thank God for them with joy, with joy. On Good Friday recently, I had the opportunity to speak at the Cloverdale Interchurch service, and part of what I talked about in that message, you may remember this, and I think I've talked about it here before. This is the thing about preaching. You often recycle your illustrations. Bad idea. I try not to do that. This is what I'm doing in this moment, so you're welcome. Uh, First world problems. And really, I shared about how first world problems are not really problems at all. Really? I mean, some of you came from other places around the globe, and you understand we've, we have it pretty good here in Canada, okay? We have it really good. These are not problems. W- most of the world wishes they had our problems, okay? So so-called first world problems, such as someone cut me off in traffic. It's terrible. My Wi-Fi is down. Call 911. My Wi-Fi... People do this, by the way. My shampoo bottle is empty. What am I supposed to do? And I have no clean clothes to wear. This is bad. This is horrific. On and on and on it goes. And this may or may not be my life that I just described, okay? Uh, My point is, you and I forget. I assume you forget like I do. We forget. We forget how good we've got it. That's the point. That every, everything good that we have in our lives ultimately comes from God, and the, the best thing in our lives is salvation, that is heaven instead of hell because of Jesus and trusting in him and what he's done for us. And so therefore, because of all these things, what must we do, what should we do, what should I do on a regular basis? Well, thank God for his good gifts. Show gratitude to, towards God. But here's another angle to part of what we need to thank God for, according to this passage. We need, you need, I need to thank God for the people in our lives, the other Christians in our lives, whom we've invested in and whom have invested in us. A lot of us in this room probably have some churches from our past, maybe the the town that we grew up in, and that church family it really invested in us and showed generosity to us and, and taught us a lot about the Bible. And the idea is to, in our prayers, don't forget about your home church where you grew up in. Don't forget about the people you've invested in spiritually, like Paul has invested in this Philippian church. Don't forget the cloud of, of witnesses and, and the people in our past who have contributed to our spiritual journey to get us to the place that we are today. Some of you have grown up children now and grandchildren, and you need to thank God for those kids and the opportunity that Christ gave you to invest in their discipleship and teach them the Bible and vice versa. We need to be partners in thankful prayer. Is this something that you've thought about recently? I haven't, but thanks to God's word, something I need to do, right? This is really helpful stuff. That's number one. We are partners in thankful prayer. Number two in your notes, we are partners in the gospel. We are partners in the gospel. Look at verse 5. It says, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is pointing out here that the Philippian church, they have been partnering together, working together with Paul in the gospel from the very beginning, back to Lydia on the day of her conversion and the the conversions of those who also came to Christ and her family, to now several years later, they've been working together in the gospel, partnering in the gospel for years. They're in this together for Jesus. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean? Think about that. Like, what does it mean to partner in the gospel? Like, what is that all about? 
Well, let's get back to some definitions here. I feel like we need to define the word gospel itself. Gospel is actually a transliterated Greek word that means literally good news. That's what it means. Gospel means good news. And what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels uh, is adapted this known uh, Greek word and then brought it into his lingo and language in the Bible's language to then refer to the good news about Jesus and the finished work of Christ, okay? And so what is the gospel? What is the good news of the gospel? Here it is, and we try to say this every, each and every Sunday in some way. The gospel is simply Jesus, and he lived 2,000 years ago, our perfect life for us in our place. Then, at the end of his life, he died our death on the cross for our sins in our place, forsaken for us, paid the price of death for us, then three days later, after his death, Jesus rose up from the grave to defeat forever Satan's sin and death on our behalf. Now, it is not enough just to hear the gospel, but Jesus demands that we respond to the gospel, and he says that we must respond to him if we want to get in on the forgiveness and the hope of heaven and new life that he offers and transformation. We must respond to Jesus with repentance of sin, putting that behind us. We must respond with faith and trust in the gospel, believing that he died on the cross for our sins in our place and rose again, and then we must be baptized. This is good news. This is good news. That's the gospel. And this is the exact same gospel message that Paul enthusiastically, wherever he, he went, shared with lost, not yet Christian people, wherever he traveled, in all of these strategic cities in and around that area, this is what he did in Philippi. Remember Lydia by the river? And sure enough, because God opened people's hearts to hear the gospel and receive it, people responded. They became Christians. They started worshiping Jesus as king of their lives. New churches were being started because anytime Paul would preach the gospel, people would respond. If there was enough of them, a cluster even, they would start a church to encourage each other. And then, when that church, like at Philippi, began, and there's a cluster of new believers, they're now partnering in the gospel with Paul, and like Paul, they're now sharing the gospel in their workplaces. They're now sharing the gospel with their family members. They're now sharing the gospel in their neighborhoods, all over the place. Yes, it meant persecution. I mean, back then, in some cases, you would die for your faith if you were a Christian. You would be put to death for, for talking about Jesus with other people. But they still did it. Isn't that amazing? That's how seriously they took their faith in new life in Christ. But despite that risk, more and more and more and more people were hearing about Christ and responding to Christ with faith, joining that local church and becoming believers. And this is what we must do today. We are a church family on mission. We are a church filled with missionaries. We may not go across the ocean. We just need to go to our workplace and talk about Jesus and live out what it is to be a loving person. Display the character of Christ in our workplaces. All right, I'm getting off track here. I want to talk about a documentary I've seen on Netflix fairly recently. And it was about two mountain climbers. You may have seen this. And they're climbing a mountain that no one else in the world has ever climbed. Okay. But by the end of the documentary, guess what happens? <laughs> they climb the mountain. They do it. First two people ever. 
first two people ever. Now, how did they climb this mountain and succeed? It is because they partnered together over literally a period of years, years of practice, of failing, and yet they accomplished their goal. They got to the top. One of the hardest things accomplished ever in human history, but they did it. They did it because they were partners together in the climbing effort, all right? They can't do this alone. They need each other, and they, it worked out. It worked out. They succeeded. Sometimes, in our culture today, it feels kind of like that. It feels like sharing our faith in Jesus, living out the gospel, living a life of the love of Christ in our context, in our day and age and culture, it feels like we're climbing this unclimbable mountain, right? It's, it's just tough sledding, man. It's rough. And we hear from those around us in, in our general wider culture, well, Christianity is it's a fable. It's not true. It's a myth. Christianity is too narrow. It's too exclusive. Christianity is just way too intolerant, and on and on and on it goes. But what makes living out our Christianity possible in this very hostile day and age in which we live is our church family. We are partnering in the gospel together. You, me, every Christian here, investing our lives little by little, taking the long view, sharing our gospel consistently, sharing the gospel consistently with the not yet Christians in our own circle of relationships, in our workplace in our street, and sure enough, by the grace of God, little by little by little, we chip away at this mountain. We start to see some people who were formerly lost become Christians. They're saved. They had no hope before, but now they have hope thanks to Jesus, thanks to us sharing the gospel. And we keep, keep chipping away at the mountain as Jesus gives us the, the power and the strength for his mission. This is a wonderful thing. What an opportunity. What a privilege it is to partner in the gospel together with Jesus and with each other. Let's move on. If you need another coffee, get another coffee. Okay, whatever it takes, all right? This is good stuff. This is God's word. Number three in your notes is this. We are partners in God's good work within us. We are partners with God and in his good work within us. All right? Number three, that's what it is. And we get this from verses six and seven. It says, For I am sure of this, that... He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So here's what this means. On the day of your conversion, on the day when you first became a, a true Christian, born again, God came in, you trusted in the finished work of the cross. Well, that is the day that God's good work began in you. Yes, he saved you. Yes, you are justified in God's sight, not by anything you've done, but only because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And at that moment of conversion, God declares you innocent. You're innocent, and you're in. You're my child because of your faith in Christ. But you see, on that day of conversion, whatever the day that was, you also underwent and started the process of what is known as sanctification. And sanctification can be summarized as proverbially taking a scrub brush to your soul. God starts to clean you up from the inside out, and he is changing you, and he's 
He's helping you identify those sinful patterns and that remaining sin in you. And he's saying that needs to change. And then he's giving you the power to change, to allow you to become more like Christ. And this sanctification scrub brush process happens over the course of your entire life until death. And on the day of your death, God's work in you on that day is complete. It's finished. But until that day, you and I and we, we are to partner together in God's work within us, his sanctifying work. Furthermore, there's another aspect, a few more aspects to God's good work in you and in us. In your notes, I want to share with you from verses 7, 10, and 11, we get some clarity on just what God's good work in us is. And little a in your notes is simply this. This is part of his good work. Supporting each other in difficult times. Supporting each other in difficult times. Paul talks about how the Philippian church, they supported him. Remember, he's in jail for his faith, and so must we in like manner. When we are going through hard times, upcoming surgeries, things, our kids are going through rough times, maybe we've lost our job, whatever our situation is, we must show that kind of love and support. That's part of God's good work in our church family that we need to partner with together in. Then, secondly, in your notes about God's good work in us is little b, simply sharing, defending, and confirming the gospel. Sharing, and then defending, and confirming the gospel. And what this means is, it's not enough, when you become a Christ follower, a Christian, it's not enough to desire to become holy and to become a changed, transformed person as God's power gives you access to it's not enough just to say, look, I've got to put, together, put aside my sin and my addictions and put that behind me. Yes, it's that. Desiring to become more holy and pure is good to become more like Jesus. That's a big part of the Christian life. But it's not enough. Why is that? It's because a big part of, our, of God's work in us and in our church and in you is to share. It's to defend. It is to confirm the gospel message. We are to pray for daily opportunities to speak about Jesus with others. We are to take personal risks in defending the gospel in our workplaces, which are very often very hostile places to Christianity. We are to confirm, basically live out the implications of the gospel, live a life of Christian love. We, we, we need to Make it obvious that God's got a hold of us and make it obvious that we are followers of Jesus, not keep that in a closet. We need to, to show that and show off the character of God and the love of God through us so that people say, there is something different about Matt. I don't know what it is, but something's different in a good way. This is good stuff we're talking about here. There's something very attractive about Matt because it's the attractiveness of Christ being displayed, you see. So in your workplace, in your street, not in a weird religious way where you're beating people up with your big Bible. No, no, no. You, our goal and our hope and our aim is to, to, to live out a winsome Christianity, an attractive Christianity, a compassionate, love-filled Christianity that, again, displays Jesus in our life. Again, people look at you, they hear you, they see you, and they're like, there's something good about that person. I don't know what it is, but I want that. I want... I want, I want their secret. What's the secret? 
That's the kind of Christianity we must live out. And moving on, verse 10 then shows us one last way in which we are to partner in God's good work in us. And let me just read verses 10 and 11 here uh, again. It says, So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And that leads us to little c in your notes, living with purity for God's glory. That's a part of what it is to partner with God's good work in you. So here's the purity thing that I talked about a little bit earlier. This is another key way that we partner with God. With God's help, with his power, with his, his motivation, are we seeking to live an increasingly pure and holy life as time goes on? In other words, this is going to be a little bit harsh, but think about your browser history, your search history for your browser. Does that indicate your desire for purity? Does your Netflix history indicate a desire for purity? Does your track record at work, think about your reputation in your workplace, does that show a desire for you displaying humble purity and, and humble holiness? Not the high and mighty self-righteous thing, but just a, a humility, and they're seeing that you're living differently in a pure way. And one last thing, when you sin, and you will, when you sin and when, when you do, are you, as part of your desire to live more purely and more humbly and more holy, are you running to the cross? We should run to the cross every day with our sin and leave it at the cross. Receive his ongoing grace and mercy and forgiveness. Are you running to the cross? That's a big key to living a holy life. Taking your, your sin to the cross each and every day. All right. Let's move on. There's one last point in your notes about this passage. And it's number four. And number four is this. Namely, we are partners in showing a knowledge and discernment-filled love for one another. Doesn't that sound strange at first? Sounds weird, doesn't it? But we are partners in showing a knowledge and discernment-filled love for one another. Verse 9 says, and this is where we get this idea, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. There it is. You see, Paul, he's speaking to the entire church family. He's not speaking to individuals here. Praying for this Philippian church, and he's praying for them that more and more and more love would be shared in and amongst them. But not just an ambiguous kind of love. You know, love in our culture is a very different thing than what love is in Paul's mind here. He is talking about a certain kind of love that we are to show to one another. He is talking about a discerning love and a knowledge-filled love. That's the kind of love that we are to share with each other. Now, what in the world is a discerning and knowledge-filled kind of love? Well, it seems to be the kind of love that uses wisdom. Imagine your love being used wisely, okay? This is a love, a wise love that says, fellow Mercy Hill Christian, uh, how can I best love you? What can I do using wisdom to truly benefit you. It's kind of specific, you see. Here's an example. It's sort of like that Christmas gift that you got last Christmas. And a family member gave you this beautiful, large, wrapped Christmas gift with an enormous bow on it. And it was massive. It looked beautiful. 
And you were so excited when they handed you this gift. It's like, thank you. Thank you for this gift. This looks amazing. I have no idea what it is, but I'm sure it's incredible. And you open it up, you pull the bow, you tear it open. No, no, no. I hate this. I hate. You don't say this out loud, by the way. But you think it. I hate this gift. (laughs) They love it. I hate it. And that's why they bought it. They bought it because they loved it. And somehow they thought that you would love it. No, you hate it. You hate it. It's the last thing you like, last thing you will ever use, last thing you want. And so in that moment, you try your best to smile, a smile of gratitude. But you just can't. And it's ugly. Things go bad. Things go sideways. So it is with Christian love that you express to your fellow church member if your Christian love does not use any discernment or knowledge. All right? It'd be like someone in the church giving me a kale salad. No. 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 Bacon salad. Bacon. No. Or I could give you more examples, but you get what I'm saying here? We got to tailor our love. And I don't I don't mean to put Sharon Lahoda on on you know as her focus or embarrass her. She gets this like no one else does in our church. I'll just leave it at that, okay? She gets this, and I've embarrassed her, I'm sure, but um, perhaps no one is more loving in our church than Sharon. Let's put it that way. Um, She gets a discerning kind of love, and uh, I'm so sorry for putting you on the spot. But tailor how you love one another. Use some discernment, use some knowledge, and that's how we just better love one another, okay? So how can... How can you better love other church members here? Let me wrap this up. Uh, let's, let's land this plane, okay? And uh, I want to give you and share with you a call to action. What do you need to be challenged by today? And here are some things to think about. Do you need to incorporate more gratitude for others in your prayers? Secondly, do you need to partner more in sharing the gospel with lost people in your life? Third, do you need to ask God to empower you to share in his good work? in his various ways. And lastly, do you need to share, show more discernment in your love for fellow church members? Which one of those kind of resounds with you that you feel like God is telling you to work on in some way? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this passage that is so different than what I would ever think about. And There's so much here to be challenged by. Thank you for the example of Paul who really lived out the gospel and understood what sacrifice he went to and such grace that was given to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that something we would take home today and not forget about this call to action and these points that we've learned from this passage today and and empower us and show us how you want to change us. I pray that more than anything, we would display you. Everything that we say and do would be for you and for your honor, putting you on display in our lives and in our church that more and more people might meet you and desire you. Thank you for the gospel. We celebrate the gospel as we participate in the Lord's Supper today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So now we're going to respond to God's word in three ways. We're going to sing a couple more songs of worship. We're going to take up an offering, which is our way of expressing our our worship and gratitude to Christ and his gospel for all that he's done for us. We contribute funds towards his mission in and through this church family. And we also are now going to be participating in 
what is known as the Lord's Supper. And this is our weekly memorial remembrance meal that we celebrate together to remember all that Christ has done for us. And it's our way of showing, just saying thank you to Jesus for giving his all for us. Let me share with you a quick communion scripture that uh, will help our hearts and minds um, think about Christ and think about the cross. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly. It's crazy to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Thank you for the cross, Lord Jesus. So with that, I'll turn it over to the service and to the worship team.